Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is good to be back on the air, and I'm sure some of you are beginning to wonder, uh, when in the world is uh, Kirk Monroe going to be back on the air again next? Well, good news to report, uh, today is that day. You know, I've uh, seen so far from the looks of things that many of you all are uh, very, very eager to learn as much as there is possible about the Lake Erie campaign. Not just so much from a campaign point of view, but what will eventually become the battle for Lake Erie that most of us have learned um, the basic 101 stuff from uh, textbooks from uh, past years, including you know documentaries on TV. But uh, this book, this uh, next uh, book book topic podcast series that we're already into, will cover even more than uh, what most of us probably would have ever have expected to learn about the campaign itself. So from the looks of things, I'm very glad to know that a lot of you are um, interested in what in what is uh, going to be presented going forward uh, uh, per uh, each segment that we do with this uh, series. As I've said before, and I will uh, say again, my objective is always to try to give all of you as good of a story as there is possible, considering, you know, not to get political, but considering that, you know, the world that we live in today, it's very easy for people to sometimes get um, offended by what might have happened in the past. And while, yes, if there was something that happened in the past that, you know, was considered to be offensive or hurtful, while, yes, it is unfortunate that it happened, uh, we must also um, be reminded that we do need to learn about it so that certain mistakes don't get um, made again in the present day or uh, as well as in the future, I should say. That's uh, the one thing that I think some people might have a tendency of um, having a hard time understanding when it comes to uh, learning about uh, history, most notably from the past. Again, I'm not trying to sound judgmental or um, be political, but uh, for me, the most important thing I can do is uh, take whatever stories I come across that I know that I either know that most of us think we know, but yet we don't really know, and at the same time come across stories that most of us simply have never even heard of and be able to uh, shed light on those stories so that um, so that going forward we learned uh, something new um, topic-wise that perhaps had never really been shared much, whether it was in textbook or on television. Because I know for a fact there are a lot of uh, historic events out there that while, yes, they took place, sometimes they may not, at times they probably have not gotten the same amount of recognition as other uh, events. So that's the thing about history is that we're always uh, having to reevaluate what we think, what we knew beforehand, and all of a sudden realizing that, well, you know, just when I thought I learned everything there was, it turns out perhaps I didn't. That's the one thing that uh, my wife and I always uh, take with us whenever we go to Williamsburg, uh, Colonial Williamsburg, that is, and when we leave, uh, whether it's for a day trip or a weekend getaway, we're always learning something new there because... uh, you know, that, for one, it was uh, Virginia's uh, capital for just over three-fourths of a century, from 1699 to 1780. So you think about how much took place there, what um, 
you know, think about what took place there prior to the thoughts of even separating from the mother country, England, and around the time when talks of uh, separation did in fact uh, happen. So Williamsburg um, saw its share of um, being loyal to king and country, and then all of a sudden an unexpected 360 happened. But that's history for you right there. So anyways, uh, going forward in this uh, podcast series uh, topic that we're discussing being a signal victory, the Lake Erie campaign of 1812 to 1813 by David Curtis Skaggs and Gerard T. Altuff. In this uh, podcast segment episode, we're going to learn about um, whom becomes America's uh, fourth president at the very end of the uh, first decade of the 19th century. We're going to learn where this... um, new uh, leader um, hails from we're also going to learn we're going to learn as to whom has a more superior navy versus the other side we're also going to learn about um, a body of water that um, that is um, to an extent um, that's a body of water that is um, that uh, flows into a great lake I should say but a body of water that is, um, that's a very uh, significant um, body of water, uh, especially when it comes to the uh, movement of um, ships uh, going from a east to west direction. And, uh, and it's a body of uh, water, a.k.a. a river, that, um, that, um, that connects uh, the United States and Canada. Uh, we will also learn um, how many states were in the Union by the time... Um, just before and by around the time that uh, Congress had uh, declared war on Britain. Uh, We will also learn about uh, leadership, uh, that is British leadership in uh, Canada, and um, and differences between uh, certain officers as to how they went about taking approaches in times of um, emergencies. And we will also learn about... um, we will also learn reasons for why uh, Congress uh, did uh, go about declaring war, most notably uh, the uh, executive or the uh, commander-in-chief. So let's be prepared for our first leadoff question to this uh, podcast uh, topic segment episode of, of a signal victory, the Lake Erie campaign of 1812 to 1813. Whom became America's fourth president on more on March the 4th, 1809. Interesting, I mentioned the month of March, folks. Uh, there was a time when um, U.S. presidents were uh, sworn in in the month of March. That all changed in uh, 1933 when um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a.k.a. FDR, uh, became president of the United States. Um, the um, It went from um, presidents being sworn in in the month of March now to... Um, January. So it's been about 90 years, folks, since uh, that um, since that uh, policy uh, or not policy, but um, but change in uh, inauguration uh, was adopted. So nonetheless, whom became America's fourth president on March the 4th, 1809? His name is Mr. James Madison, whom was Thomas Jefferson's secretary of state 
being a post that he had held since May of 1801. So from May of 1801 up until the beginning of March 1809, James Madison was Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of State. But I will say this, James Madison has uh, an impeccable um, record of uh, government service to his country, and we certainly owe him a gr- we owe him an immense amount of uh, gratitude for his uh, services. Uh, prior to becoming America's fourth president, including Secretary of State, uh, James Madison served in the United States House of Representatives from 1789 to 1797. He served as a well. Uh, he served, as a matter of fact, when he served in the House of Representatives, he served in uh, two different uh, congressional districts. And we should keep in mind, folks, that even when the first uh, Congress uh, convened in 1789, um, the United States government, folks, was not in uh, Washington, D.C. It was in New York, New York City, folks. That's where George Washington took the oath of office on April the 30th of 1789. And he was the first um, commander-in-chief to set a precedent by um, by taking his... Um, by uh, ra- by holding uh, one hand on top of a Bible and raising his other hand uh, to take the uh, oath of office. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the oath of office as President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, um, defend, protect, uh, to the best of my ability, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, so help me God. So George Washington uh, set that uh, precedent in store. And all other presidents since then have um, have taken that oath of office. So, um, so yes, the first uh, Congress convened in uh, New York um, City, but of course, with um, the Residency Act of 1790, that um, that law went into effect where in 1790, where uh, the government relocated to uh, Philadelphia and would stay there for ten years until 1800, when the nation's capital, as we know it today, became Washington, D.C. Well, besides uh, Madison, uh, well, one other interesting thing about James Madison's um, time in the House of Representatives, and most of us probably don't know this, James Madison, during his time in uh, Congress in the first session, most notably, he laid out the blueprint for the Bill of Rights. He won a very... um, challenging and close election against a friend named James Monroe, who was running as a Federalist in 1788. Uh, James Monroe felt that the need for a Bill of Rights just, it didn't need to be addressed right away. But there were many whom wanted a Bill of Rights. I mean, there were the, there were uh, delegates in Philadelphia in 1787 who there were a couple of delegates, folks, who did not even sign the United States Constitution because it left out a Bill of Rights. Uh, most notably, uh, George Mason, um, Edmund Randolph, uh, two men from Virginia, another fellow by the name of um, of uh, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. Uh, they refused to sign the Constitution because uh, there was no uh, Bill of Rights. Well, eventually, folks, a Bill of Rights did come about, but we have Mr. James Madison to thank for it. He helped lay the foundation during that first uh, Congress of uh, seeing to it that the Bill of Rights 
was implemented, a.k.a. the first ten amendments to the Constitution. So we, whenever we hear the right to have uh, free speech, the right to assemble, petition, uh, the right to a fair and speedy trial, uh, the right to be uh, free from unreasonable search and seizures, um, the right to be free from uh, self-incrimination, a.k.a. double jeopardy, uh, the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishments. Uh, those are all amendments uh, that are part of the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments, but, have, but thank Mr. James Madison for that. He did serve as a delegate from uh, Virginia to the Confederation Congress from 1781 to 1783, as well as from 1786 to 1787. He attended the Constitutional Convention, where he earned the title of Father of the Constitution, given his leadership for spearheading the replacement behind the existing, or I should say fledgling, gover government under the Articles of Confederation, where... You know, the states were 13 separate entities, and they pretty much um, they pretty much uh, ran the show. They didn't trust the central government. They feared that, that whatever the central government did, it would be too much uh, power. It would be too much uh, authority. Basically, we need something else. James Madison, during his time at the Constitutional Convention, he went about studying republics, republics that existed in ancient civiliz civilization times, Republics that had existed even before um, the first settlements were established in the New World. He wanted to know why certain republics succeeded and why other republics failed. And by doing so, it gave him a better understanding of where our nation needed to go forward in terms of eventually replacing the Articles of Confederation altogether. Well, given that uh, James Madison, being a Virginian by birth, what I found to be very uh, unique about him in terms of what made him different, say from other uh, forefathers whom were from Virginia, most notably uh, Thomas Jefferson, whom attended the College of William and Mary, and most Virginians whom were born into the um, upper gentry or upper aristocracy, uh, the, the elite of uh, Virginia society, their sons uh, attended the College of William and Mary, largely in part because... Uh, for one, Virginia was uh, run by the Anglican Church, a.k.a. the Church of England, and uh, the College of William and Mary was uh, tied into the um, Anglican Church. Well, James Madison is different, folks. James Madison um, did not attend the College of William and Mary. He instead went north in 1769 at age 18, where he enrolled at the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton University. There's only about nine colleges in um, colonial America at this time, folks. Them all, Eight of them are up north, and there's only one in the south, and that's in Virginia, folks, the College of William & Mary. So James Madison, um, he went to uh, the, co the College of New Jersey because, it, for one, there was broader uh, tolerance of, uh, in religion. Yes, James Madison grew up being an Anglican, but he wanted a better, um, he saw that the uh, College of New Jersey provided more in terms of religious diversity, religious tolerance. Uh, for Madison, it appeared as though the College of New Jersey probably offered a more broader uh, curriculum that perhaps wasn't so formally structured, whereas the College of William and Mary, given its ties directly to the Anglican Church. 
But during his time at the College of New Jersey, he became close friends with uh, William Bradford, whom, uh, and not the famous uh, William Bradford from uh, the late uh, 17th century, whom led the uh, pilgrims over to uh, Plymouth Rock. But there was a fellow named William Bradford, whom would go on to become a, a future attorney general of the United States under uh, George Washington. And he also was uh, friends with a fellow by the name of uh, Mr. Aaron Burr, who one day would become uh, a future vice president, a politician, and a nemesis of Mr. Alexander Hamilton's. James Madison studied Hebrew and political philosophy under John Witherspoon, whom would become the only clergyman and college president to have signed the Declaration of Independence. A unique uh, first right there. How about this question? Besides having signed a war declaration against the mightiest nation on earth, being that of Great Britain, what elements or grounds was the declaration itself based upon? When I um, researched this question that I wanted to address to you all, I had to think of it as like, a smaller version of uh, Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. And I know that there were uh, 27 grievances in the end that were listed in the Declaration of Independence, and one of them had to do with uh, Jefferson accusing uh, King George III of uh, ravaging our coasts, plundering our seas. Well, in this case, uh, we forward to eight, uh, June of 1812, June 18th of 1812, that is, it's more than uh, one answer behind um, the elements or grounds that the Declaration itself was based upon. How about the enemy being Britain violating the American flag on the oceans? What do you mean violating the American flag on the oceans? Well, you know, whenever a nation is um, traveling along the waters, they need to have their uh, flag uh, present so that other uh, ships going in the opposite direction that are not far by can recognize that, okay, is this a nate, is this a ship or a, a, or a flotilla of ships from this particular country? Are they a friend? Are they a foe? Are they neutral? In other words, in 1812, folks, you know, the world's not at peace. Britain and France are in a war against each other, and yet America's stuck in the middle, even though we're neutral, but yet they are harassing our sailors, you know, engaging in that wonderful activity of impressment. And how about um, capturing endless scores of American people under protection of public law? Okay, yes, our, the American people, you know, are protected to where they have the right to assemble and petition. They have the right to free speech, but the only problem is that those laws like that don't apply when you're out on the water. Once you get captured, I mean, you're at your own mercy. Unfortunately, there's no such thing as the United Nations. And, um, and then um, how about forcing them, who's them, the sailors, against their own will on board enemy warships where they were forced into, and, and I'm not um, sounding political with this, folks, but if you, are, if you were a sailor and you got impressed meaning that you got forced against your own will to fight alongside the enemy, you basically were forced into bondage. In other words, 
by not only were you forced into bondage, but by doing so, you were serving those whom impressed out of out of superiority. You know, as the British Empire expanded, even before uh, the start of the 19th century, as a result of expanding your empire, what does that mean you're going to have to do if you're on the side of the British folks? You're going to have to capture your enemies, not just their vessels, but you're going to have to capture their men, and you're going to have to subdue them in uh, making them become in submitting them under your authority. And by doing so, you are expanding your empire, even if it means doing so illegally. How can the debate behind going uh, to war against... Um, well, let me rephrase the question. How can the debate behind going to war amongst members of Congress be best described? It was tense, fierce, very partisan, including displaying hostilities along regional sections. Even before uh, Congress declared war, when Thomas Jefferson signed the Embargo Act of 1807, pretty much placing 10,000 New Englanders out of jobs, there were those in New England who wanted to secede from the Union because of the reckless uh, piece of legislation that the uh, Anti-Federalists enacted into law. Jefferson believed that, well, if we sign this embargo into law, that Britain will stop harassing our sailors on the ocean. We will be able to resort to um, making our own textiles. We will be able to become more domestically independent and not have to rely on goods manufactured goods being brought to us 3,000 miles across the ocean. Well, all of that looks great on paper, but it loses its luster when you sign it into law and you place 10,000 people out of work to where they could be out of work not just for weeks, but for months, maybe shy of a year. Well, just before Jefferson left office, that Embargo Act was repealed, but, uh, but the effects had already uh, shown. So you can see how the hostilities along regional sections would have uh, played out if you were in, um, in the New England region. Every Federalist in Congress, folks, opposed the war declaration. The House of Representatives saw a vote of 79 to 49. The Senate was 17 to 13. Talk about close. Since the time when Thomas Jefferson had become president in March of 1801, the Anti-Federalists, or the Democratic-Republican Party, had engaged in policy tactics where less money got spent involving the military. And this all stems from ideology, folks, political ideology. The Anti-Federalists don't believe in standing armies. They... They don't hate the military, but they just don't believe a standing army is necessary in a time of peace. They feel that standing armies represent a threat to the average person's everyday uh, life, most notably fundamental liberties like life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Um, they just feel that standing armies would take away people's freedoms. But at the same time, folks, don't you need a standing army in a time of peace? I think you do because you never know when when that uh, peace or that sense of innocence could be shattered. Well, um, by the time James Madison becomes president, and we have to remember, folks, that in the early years of our republic's existence, we didn't have the same um, governmental structure like we know today. 
the most uh, prevalent uh, departments in the early years of the Republic that still exist today, but the most uh, prevalent ones were the Secretary of uh, the Department of State, Department of Treasury, and before it became Department of Defense, it was known as the, De as the Department of War. So, and, and to uh, top that off, when a president, a new president took office, he needed to make sure that he had a uh, that he had a proper balance in his cabinet department. So, in other words, he had he needed to have an equal number of he needed to have the same number of northerners as well as southerners. He couldn't just say, "Well, I'm going to have all northerners in my department if I hail from New England," or, in the case of Jefferson being a Virginian, "Well, I'm going to have all southerners. All of my uh, cabinet met officials will be from the South. I'm going to exclude everyone from the Mid Atlantic and New England." That's not how it worked. Even if it meant not always getting along with uh, political ideologies, there had to be an, an equal balance to show the American people that you know government could function even um, even when it seemed as though there was no hope. Or so for James Madison, his um, war secretary is a guy named Dr. William Eustace, who is a native of Massachusetts. Um, Dr. Eustace um, served as Madison's War Secretary from 1809 to 1813. Unfortunately for Dr. Eustace, he lacked all fundamental administrative skills, including not having a thorough military background. <laughs> Although the guy served in the Revolutionary War, he just didn't have very good uh, extensive leadership. What is Madison thinking? But then again... But then again, when Madison took office, I mean, it is fair to say that he probably might have known that it was just a matter of time before war was going to be declared. But at the same time, why is it that we are taking someone who, yes, fought in the Revolutionary War, but doesn't have um, extensive uh, leadership via an administrative uh, perspective? It happens. Uh, Paul Hamilton, who went on to become Madison's Navy secretary, he served in that post from May of 1809 to January 1813. He fought in the Revolutionary War under General Francis Marion during the Southern Campaign. He was a strong advocate of military readiness regarding fortifications by water. He sought to enhance the Navy's size, but he faced a dilemma. He encountered stiff opposition within Congress, including President Madison himself. You know, it's one thing to have maybe opposition with a few members of Congress or maybe with the opposing party, but to have um, opposition from within, being the uh, head executive, the commander-in-chief, how can you expect to get anything done? I mean, you got to be prepared, but yet even if the commander-in-chief doesn't want to take your advice, then how are you going to get anywhere? To me, it just makes no sense. And uh, in terms of uh, bureaucracy size, in terms of what's going to be uh, lying ahead for this war, uh, Secretary of War uh, William, Dr. William Eustace had eight clerks working for him. <laughs> Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton only has two clerks under him. So for Eustace's eight clerks and Hamilton's two, they are... They are to be responsible for coordinating a war whose boundaries went as far north as New England to all the way south into the Gulf of Mexico. 
do you really think that this number of clerks and knowing that there's not a whole lot of unification how do you expect to make headways headways for the better to me it's it's just uh, not uh, feasible where did the u.s army stand number wise at the start of jefferson's administration the army strength stood around one artillery unit and two infantry regulars giving it a total around 3350 officers and men 3350 officers and men might sound like a lot but to me that um that pales in comparison to where it should be if you had say 10,000 officers and men i think you would be better off the majority of the troops that would be answering the call of duty by the time congress has declared war or just after these troops are untrained or these men i should say are untrained they are inferior they are inexperienced inferior meaning that they don't um really uh resemble what a soldier should look like perhaps many of these men whom are whom are going to be um making up this so-called american army to me they would probably remind me of uh, the militia from the american revolutionary war whom uh, george washington was not a big fan of because washington always believed that militiamen only thought about themselves given that they came and went as they pleased of course george washington died in 1799 but if he saw the men that um that were uh, introduced he would be probably saying to himself other than shaking his head he would be saying to himself are these the men that god um spared our um republic to defend our country as we are now going to be engaged in a second war with with england i believe he would have said all that now, prior to 1812, the Army regulars were, were required to enlist for five years maximum, but as the year 1812 neared its end, enlistment amongst the regulars was altered to where it lasted throughout the war's duration. The Army of 1812 is primarily a frontier force, as well as coastal artillery force, which had minimal experience in logistics along with strategical planning so basically these this frontier force is all about it's all about protecting those whom are already on the um, frontier of what we know is uh, ohio in the northwest territory uh, kentucky tennessee they're basically trying to prevent you know as much as we want to expand into the further into the northwest territory past ohio whatever um, concentration of uh, frontier um, troops we have, the only thing they can really do is defend us from a defensive uh, perspective, and that is to keep out the Indians from uh, from engaging in uh, further invasions. But yet uh, the troops that we are going to, um, I should say this, that the uh, troops that are already um considered to be a frontier force as well as a coastal artillery force they have minimal experience in logistics along with strategical planning but these troops presently available consist of militia units where wartime volunteer companies got raised and patrolled or i should say looked over by multiple states 
So basically, uh, the, the federal government is almost under the uh, administrations of Jefferson and now Madison are asking the states to take on the burden of raising of raising wartime volunteer companies to looking over the units and the men that are that have been enlisted. Uh, to me, this is a grave mistake. And you want to fight against the world's mightiest empire? To me, that that just um, that just to me that just doesn't bode well. The War of 1812's beginning comprised of army officers whose experiences dated back to the American Revolutionary War. And while there's nothing wrong with that, but the big problem is that these officers were up in age. Some were in their 60s, which in 1812 is considered old age, considering life expectancy still isn't 100% high, and a lot of that could also be based upon where you're living. Of course, back then, they knew historians knew that if you lived in, New in-, in the New England region, you had a better life expectancy, given that there was uh, greater accessibility to many things, whereas if you lived, say, in Georgia, being the most remote of the 13 colonies, your life expectancy wouldn't have been as high. And the same for um, South Carolina being another uh, lower southern uh, colony at the time. So yes, these officers are up there in age, and no torch is out there in terms of passing down the line for the next officer generation. While the Army is experiencing issues, the Navy, on the other hand, is more organized, unlike the Army. And that, hey, that, that might be what, what could be to our advantage. However, the Navy, though, the American Navy is very inferior to the British Royal Navy with regards to overall manpower, firepower, and vessels. Listen to the, these statistics, folks. The number three, that is, that represents three British fighting ships. For every three British fighting ships present, there is only one U.S. naval gun. So that means per, all, per, every, three, per every set of three fighting um, British ships, there's only going to be one U.S. naval gun to go up against them. June of 1812, roughly 700 Royal Navy warships are at sea. 700, folks. Whereas the United States Navy has just 17 seagoing vessels and 165 gunboats. 17 vessels, seagoing vessels, folks. We... Yes, we're, we're a young country, folks. We're just shy of turning a quarter century old in terms of our republic in 1812. But if we want to go up against the mightiest empire in the world, we, even though our navy is better than our army, we still have a lot. We still have a long ways to go. Now, uh, how many states were in the Union by the time President Madison signed the Congressional War Declaration? 18. Louisiana had become the 18th state admitted to the Union in April of 1812. So since the time the United States Constitution uh, was signed and ratified by the states, we have gone from 13 states now to uh, 18 total. That means that Kentucky, Tennessee, Vermont, Ohio, and Louisiana, over uh, a course of uh, 21 years from the time the Bill of Rights 
was adopted in 1791, being the same year that Kentucky and uh, Tennessee were uh, admitted into the Union, the United States has grown for the better. By the time uh, 1812 arrives, we have 7.5 million people living in the United States. When, uh, when, when we declared our independence from Britain, folks, there were only about 2 or 2.5 two million people living in America. And at the time, in, in 1776, when that happened, uh, Philadelphia was the largest city with about 40,000 uh, people. Although the United States uh, declared war against England, Canada is still under British rule. The U.S. chose, or I should say sought, to invade Canada. And they sought to invade Canada not just so much because Canada is north of the border of us, but the United States wanted to prevent Britain from using Canadian resources to ports. But more importantly, the U.S. government had suspected that British military forces were arming Native American tribes whom stood in the way of American westward expansion. Well, the Native Americans have seen their shares of promises come and go, most notably with the British, uh, especially in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War when the Treaty of Paris did not even include them. And now all of a sudden the British want to um, come to their aid again. The Indians like it, but the Indians are going to have to wonder, are they going to do things differently for us when this war is all said and done with? Uh, what river flows through the Canadian provinces of Ontario and Quebec, including New York State? How about the St. Lawrence River? The St. Lawrence River, folks, flows into a large body of water being Lake Ontario, the river's modern, or I should say present-day name, has been used since 1604 when French explorer Samuel de Champlain first recorded the river by map. And to think that, uh, Saint, that the St. Lawrence River's uh, present name, having been used since 1604, that means that uh, that came about three years before the English went about establishing their uh, first settlement in the New World via uh, what we know as uh, Jamestown in Virginia. The St. Lawrence River uh, was created as a result from the last ice age. Yes, folks, believe it or not, uh, the Great Lakes, even uh, rivers like the St. Lawrence River, they were those bodies of water were created out of the last ice age. The same could be said for New York State's Eleven Finger Lakes. They were created from the last ice age as well. So bodies of water just don't get created on their own. They usually uh, come about as a result of something drastic, in this case being the end of the ice age. The Canadian um, strategical invasion situation, and I, I think this is important because the United States might have missed a, an a, a, a big opportunity to strike a blow against the British early on in this uh, conflict. But the reason why it involves the St. Lawrence River is the following. The Canadian strategical invasion situation has been described or characterized like a huge tree. Why a huge tree? Well, a tree is more than just a tree, folks. You know, a tree has, you know, a stem. It has um, roots. 
It has, you know, branches. So each of the each of a tree's components um, not only tells a story, but it also um, explains why uh, each uh, segment or facet is uh, significant in helping the other uh, components. So as for given that the uh, Canadian strategical invasion situation has been best described or characterized like a huge tree, take the roots, for example, being the origin that lied directly uh, with the North Atlantic Ocean. The North Atlantic Ocean does flow into the St. Lawrence River. How about the trunk, the main stem, or the component being that of the St. Lawrence River itself? The trunk is straight. So for the St. Lawrence River, it's running um, in a straight direction. How about the uh, branches being the rivers and lakes running or flowing out into the waterway? There are rivers and lakes that, that do flow in and out of the St. Lawrence River. And as I mentioned earlier, um, the St. Lawrence River flows into a large body of water being a great lake and that of Lake Ontario. Well, if you were fighting on the United States side, what would be the most practical strategy for invading Canada? How about targeting the trunk? That is the St. Lawrence River. The United States wanted control of the Great Lakes Territory from... They wanted... The United States wanted control of the Great Lakes as a means of keeping the Northwest Territory from falling into British hands. But securing Great Lakes from the enemy, folks, to me, was far more doable through controlling the St. Lawrence around Montreal, Quebec, and its entrance to the Ottawa River. If, a, if this strategy had been approached, folks, the St. Lawrence would have clamored, resulting in all other lakes and rivers being cut off from all enemy outlet sources. Had the Americans been smart... I hate to say this, folks, but um, I don't know if I should tell you this now, but if I don't, then I'll make sure to tell it to you in the next podcast segment episode. But our administration, when James Madison is in office, I think it'd probably be fair for me to say this now, but I'll, I'll probably mention it again somewhere down the road. Madison is not Madison is a bright scholar when it comes to having um, been the father of our Constitution, the father of our Bill of Rights, understanding why some republics succeeded, why other republics failed. He's a brilliant legislator. James Madison is not a good wartime leader. And so early on in this conflict, there are going to be um, a series of mistakes by the, by the United States that will backfire. And one of these mistakes was not seizing the St. Lawrence River. Naval commanders from Captain Arthur Sinclair to Commodore Isaac Chauncey both agreed that the army was to invade Montreal first, but the opposite took place. What, what took place first, folks? Um, by pursuing the uh, branches, uh, the rivers and the lakes. In this case... Um, for those of you who were with me when we talked about in the previous uh, podcast series about um, men of um, courage and uh, patriotism about Fort Meigs, what did uh, that Brigadier General of uh, William Hull do? He decided to go, um, he decided to attack uh, via uh, the Great Lakes. 
Of course, he wasn't anywhere near the St. Lawrence River, but maybe it would have been smart if the government had um, sent an, had placed um, an army unit or a couple of army units up there in the St. Lawrence River where they could have begun uh, disrupting uh, Britain's means of being able to uh, thoroughly uh, access the river. Uh, prior to and around the time uh, the War of 1812 began, how many Canadian provinces made up uh, British North America? There were five. Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Lower Canada being modern-day Quebec, and Upper Canada being present-day modern Ontario. Upper Canada was comprised of many residents whom once lived in colonial America, only to escape or emigrate northward because of loyalties. Hence, they were loyalists, loyal to king and country, and coming to uh, Canada being Upper Canada, or, or I should say of what we know as present-day Ontario, was uh, a place of asylum or refuge for those people. Uh, the year 1811 was an important one for British gentleman Sir George Prevost. Besides becoming a lieutenant general outside of Nova Scotia on July 4th of that year, September and October of that year also saw him go from one rank to, to now holding two new titles. He um, earned the ranks of uh, Captain General and Governor-in-Chief in and over the provinces of Upper and Lower Canada. So in other words, folks, he is not only in control of modern Ontario, but as well as modern Quebec. Uh, whom served next in line just below General uh, George uh, Prevost? His name was Major General Sir Isaac Brock, whom served as Upper Canada's Lieutenant Governor from 1811 to October 13th of 1812. I uh, read some interesting stuff on Isaac Brock that I do believe is worth sharing. Prior to um, his becoming Upper Canada's Lieutenant Governor, Isaac Brock in January of 1790 purchased a rank of lieutenant to going about raising his own unit of troops serving under him. This is all uh, very well um, successful because by because on January 27th of 1791 he became captain to an independent company. In June 15th of 1791, he began serving in the 49th Regiment of Foot, and in the year 1802, that just so happened to be the year which um, Isaac Brock and the 49th Regiment got sent to Canada. Sometimes it's easy to think, well, they just got uh, relocated somewhere uh, just recently, but no, it turns out, folks, that... Um, Major General Sir Isaac Brock has been with the 49th Regiment of Foot in Canada since the um, since the early start of the 19th century, and uh, being in 1802. It also just happens that in the year 1802 that the United States' first military academy was created, being none other than uh, West Point in uh, New York State. Upper Canada... I will say this, folks, Upper Canada did pose issues internally for Isaac Brock. The year 1804 saw multiple acts take place involving desertion amongst British soldiers. And yes, folks, desertion was rampant in the, um, in the American Revolutionary War amongst British soldiers, most notably when they had um, occupied uh, cities like uh, Boston and New York and probably to some degree Philadelphia. 
But yes, even in um, Canada, folks, there is desertion taking place. So luckily for Isaac Brock, he was able to uh, go about overseeing that those troops whom did desert got recaptured, and I'm sure they were met with some uh, swift punishments. Upper Canada was also home to a fair number of legislators whom were very sympathetic to their southern neighbors, a.k.a. the Americans. I never would have thought that uh, people in Canada, folks, were actually sympathetic to their southern neighbors during this um, time of crisis. One thing that Isaac Brock is lacking, given that he's got legislators in Upper Canada whom are sympathetic to their southern neighbors, Isaac Brock is lacking broad support from the legislature involving the use of force. And because the legislature is hesitant on giving him any kind of broad um, authority when it comes to the use of force, Isaac Brock now is ta- has now taken matters into his own hands by governing Upper Canada via dictator style. You know, I know that in the United that in 1776, not only did we declare our our uh, what do you call it, we severed our ties with the mother country, but we also knew that we were being threatened by a tyrant 3,000 miles across the ocean. I have to wonder those whom are sympathetic to our friends in the south or or south of the border being uh, the United States are those um, Canadians living in Upper Canada are they going to feel as though they are being that they are being threatened by um, a tyrant not only 3,000 miles across the ocean may not be the same um, style of um, harsh rule but is it fair to say that they could see um, Sir Major General Isaac Brock as a tyrant? Possibly. Is it fair to say that Major General Sir Isaac Brock was a more was um, a more aggressive officer versus General George Prevost? Uh, the answer is yes. And how so? Well, whereas General Prevost was instructed only to conduct it was only, whereas General Prevost was instructed only to conduct offensive tactics in the case of unforeseen circumstances where he had to use um, violence to um, to quell any um, measure of unrest that had potential to um, to uh, disrupt or I should say disturb the um, the greater uh, state of peace. Isaac Brock knew firsthand directly where the greatest vulnerability lied, being none other than Canada's, in quotations folks, uh, tree trunk, the St. Lawrence River. So Major General Brock is not going to sit back. He's taking matters into his own hands. I mean, if he's already taken matters into his own hands by governing Upper Canada in a dictatorial style, He's probably going to take matters militaristically in a dictatorial manner where he's basically going to run the show and and defy orders, knowing that his country that he's representing, the country he's representing, even though it's under British rule, is facing a crisis, a national security crisis to the given that the neighbors to the south could invade Canada at any moment's notice. 
So for Major General Brock, he went about devising multiple strategies for, for where troops of multiple regiments, including the 49th, got stationed or placed around the St. Lawrence River. He, he also included logistics. His uh, game plan or his uh, strategical planning also included logistics for the St. Lawrence's branches being rivers and lakes, okay? We can't place all of our eggs in one basket being around the heart of the St. Lawrence River, but we've got to have troops stationed along Lake Ontario. We've got to have troops stationed along other rivers as well so that in the event the Americans are going to attack, we can beat them because we already have our people ahead of us. And given that we have more manpower from a, uh, from a naval perspective, you know, we can beat them on both ends, not only with uh, soldiers on land, but uh, naval ships by water. Did British forces along the Great Lakes uh, comprise of officers and men from the Royal Navy? Turns out, folks, no. The service, or the units along the Great Lakes, including the St. Lawrence River and sections to Lake Champlain, was known as the Provincial Marine, a.k.a. Coastal Protection Service. The Provincial Marine um, system resembled a Coast Guard unit or organization, although many of their ships, um, despite many of their ships getting built on Great Lakes waters. And by late 1811, only two British ships amongst the greater fleet were stationed on Lake Erie, being the Queen Charlotte and the Brig, and Brig General Hunter. The Provincial Marine, however, was in the midst of building a new vessel called the Lady Prevost. Whereas the uh, British Navy has ships on Lake Erie, the United States Navy, folks, does not have a ship present on Lake Erie, but does have an army supply vessel that operated out of Detroit known as Adams. Well, yes, ships are important in transporting not only uh, soldiers, that is, who, you know, or I should say Navy men who will be fighting along the seas, not only on the oceans, but on the lakes, but smaller um, vessels are just as vital. How about canoes? You know, when I think of canoes, I always think of, you know, recreational purposes. And while, yes, canoes would have been um, something recreational for Indian, for multiple Indian tribes to have used, canoes um, during a time of war, folks, did serve as a crucial naval asset, especially during the first year to the War of 1812. War canoes became a vital naval force on the Central Lakes most notably like uh, Lake Erie, including the um, Lake Erie Islands. Lake Erie Islands like Kelly's Island, South Bass, a.k.a. Putin Bay. And uh, Central Lakes being also like Lake Michigan, where, say, Green Bay, Wisconsin is located. So the um, war canoes were, were essential for... Um, Indian tribes living along the Great Lakes to use because they could transport uh, warriors whom went about attacking American settlements east to west. East, as far east as Cleveland, Ohio, um, which is uh, 
not the easternmost part of Lake Erie, but it's um, but it's close enough. So how about you know east to west? So from east, think of Cleveland, Ohio, and west, Chicago. What we would now know as Chicago, Illinois. Of course, in 1812, Illinois is not a state just yet. It's still Illinois territory. But there is a fort in what we know as present-day Chicago called uh, Fort Dearborn. So the Indians, by going east to west, these war canoes are allowing them to uh, not only transport warriors, but also launch um, what we would think of as irregular-style fighting tactics, not by land, but by sea. Well, that covers um, everything for this uh, podcast uh, segment um, episode to a signal victory the lake erie campaign uh when i'm on the air again next time with you guys we are going to be learning more about war along the upper lakes in 1812 we will also be uh discussing uh some other information in terms of um hopefully we will be getting into information pertaining to uh preparing for the 1813 campaign when i'm on the air Uh, next time with you guys but uh, thank you for your time as always and I look forward to being back on the air with you all and thank you for being such ardent listeners without you all I'm not sure where I would be but I do thank you all from the bottom of my heart Uh, take care for now and stay safe wherever you all may live